The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. Welcome to Burger Yippee. Would you like a hot apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won. Woohoo! So that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went big time playing high five casino on my phone. Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. Yeah. So yes or no on the apple pie? Woo! I won again. I'll take that as a yes. Drive around. Have you had your high five moment today? Only at highfivecasino.com. High five casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High five casino. I'm going out with the girls this weekend. Nails, done. Outfit, stunner. And my skin? I know it's going to be glowing because I glammed up my shower routine with new Olay Indulgent Moisture Body Wash. It smells so luxurious and deeply moisturizes with its super rich, creamy lather that's bursting with vitamin B3 complex. So my skin glows and my confidence grows. Try new Olay Indulgent Moisture Body Wash for glowing skin in just 14 days. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart and occasionally about how to put them back together again. And today we have a special episode. We're going to be talking about a place where things did, in fact, fall apart and uh, people are, you could say, still in the process of putting them back together again and trying to do it in a way that is much more equitable and and better than things had been before the collapse. Uh, That is Rojava in northeast Syria. I'm going to introduce kind of that concept in uh, uh, I'll, I'll do it right now. Basically, if you if you don't know anything about this, you might check out our podcast, The Women's War. Um, but it is a it is an autonomous region, not a state in northeast Syria that is not under the control of the Assad regime um, or of any other state in the area. It's an independent um, community that is based on some pretty radical it's in its organization is based on some pretty radical political philosophies, um, uh, in large part, ones that were sort of initially explored by a man named Murray Bookchin, who was a, an American social theorist and anarchist, anarchist political philosopher. Um, and some of his ideas were adopted by the leader of a militant group in the region called the PKK. Um, and the leader of that group was a guy in a Turkish prison named Abdullah Ajalan, who was, you might say, a Kurdish freedom fighter. Um, Ajalan encountered Bookchin's ideas and started writing his own books of political theory that were kind of based off of them. And then when uh, 2013, you get the Syrian civil war reaches its kind of height, ISIS becomes a thing. Suddenly the government's not in this area that has a large Kurdish population, Northeast Syria. And, um, you know, people who are followers of Ajalon take over and start as they're fighting ISIS, instituting this kind of radical feminist egalitarian vision of society. Uh, which is currently under attack by the Turkish government, which is what we're going to be talking about. So I want to introduce our guests for today. First off, we have uh, we have James Stout and we have uh, Chris on the call from our normal Cool Zone team. And then our guests today uh, are Debbie Bookchin. Uh, Debbie is a journalist and author and co-editor of The Next Revolution, Popular Assemblies, and the Promise of Direct Democracy. Um, and then we also have Megan Bodet from the Kurdish Peace Institute, uh, where she is the director of research. Um, Welcome to the show, Megan and Debbie. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you both for your time. I think maybe to start us out, Megan, um, would you be willing to talk a little bit about why the Turkish government is so aggressive towards this independent region in Northeast Syria and kind of what the situation on the ground is now? Yeah, absolutely. So for some background, essentially, since the division of the Middle East into the modern nation states that exist there today, after uh, World War One, with um, the agreements by European powers, uh, the Kurdish people have been divided between four different states, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Syria. And all of those states have had governments that have been um, ethno-nationalist, that have been repressive, that have not provided Kurds and other ethnic and religious minorities 
equal citizenship rights, um, to participate in politics and to practice their culture, to speak their language, um, in addition to denying many of these rights to many of their other citizens uh, of different ethnicities and religions as well. And so as a result of this repression, and the repression in Turkey was some of the strongest and most systemic, um, the Kurdish people in these regions have continued to struggle for and demand uh, self-determination and freedom in different political forms. What happened in Turkey in the 1920s and the 1930s, there were Kurdish revolts against the new um, Turkish Republic, which was a um, very uh, autocratic nation state that denied the existence of all non-Turkish ethnicities. And these revolts were all violently put down with attacks that not only targeted those who uh, tried to resist these policies of assimilation, but that also resulted in um, Turkish you know, mass violence against Kurdish civilians in these regions. You had forced deportations, you had uh, ethnic cleansing, you had all kinds of brutal violence against civilians in order to specifically create this homogenous Turkish ethnic identity in Kurdish regions. And so after this period of time, there were... Um, there was a period wherein there uh, was less resistance. And I think, you know, the Turkish government believed that the Kurdish problem had been solved by force. They had successfully been able to kill or assimilate um, all of the Kurdish people. But in the 1970s and the 1980s, sort of concurrent with many national liberation movements around the world, you had the beginning of the PKK or the Kurdistan Workers Party's national liberation struggle now, they began as a socialist movement seeking an independent and socialist Kurdish state, and they saw Kurdistan as a colony that was occupied uh, by Turkey, and with the colonialism uh, of Turkey in Kurdistan was supported by um, imperialist powers in the rest of the world as well. And they sought to write that as other national liberation movements in um, Africa, Asia, Latin America, many places at the time did with an armed struggle for independence. And in responding to the PKK's formation and armed struggle, the Turkish state once again, rather than acceding to any Kurdish demands, they responded with brutal, violent oppression of not only Kurds who were active in the armed struggle, not only politically active Kurds, but on all forms of Kurdish identity. Uh, after the military coup in Turkey in 1980, the Kurdish language was banned. Um, Kurds were imprisoned on false charges or no charges at all. Um, torture was prevalent. Show trials were prevalent. Um, any kind of publication or other public uh, interaction in Kurdish was completely illegal. So there was this full-scale effort to repress the Kurds and any other progressive segments of society in Turkey that would have supported them. And as the conflict went on, Turkey did very little to change. By the 1990s, the um, success of the Kurdish movement had forced the state to recalibrate, as had developments in Iraqi Kurdistan with Kurds there achieving autonomy. And so you started to have uh, the ability of Kurdish political actors to work within the system. We saw the development of pro-Kurdish legal political parties at that time, but there was still very severe um, repression of any and all things Kurdish as they made their demands, even of those who increasingly attempted to make demands peacefully. So the conflict went on um, throughout the 1990s and the 2000s. And to this day, um, despite a peace process between between uh, the government of Turkey and the PKK and the Kurdish movement between 2012 and 2015. Um, that process failed when Erdogan's government saw that it was allowing for Kurds to take advantage of expanded democratic space in Turkey, organize and achieve electoral political success. The government abandoned its commitments and sadly returned to war. And uh, the conflict has been going on ever since and has included, you know, again, not only this military component, but this component of crushing all forms of organized Kurdish political and cultural expression. So what we've been seeing in Turkey over the past um, nearly a decade now, more than a half decade, is the repression of the pro-Kurdish political opposition in parliament, the People's Democratic Party or the HDP. Um, we've seen repression of Kurdish media, 
attacks on Kurdish journalists. Um, we've seen any kind of Kurdish activism, not only um, that that's explicitly political, but any kind of acknowledgement of the Kurdish language, of Kurdish colors, of Kurdish clothing, very readily criminalized. And this campaign of attacking and repressing all things Kurdish has, of course, expanded beyond Turkey's borders. So Turkey opposes North and East Syria because the Syrian Kurds have created a form of autonomous governance that protects and promotes Kurdish rights, because they have done so in the framework of the Kurdish freedom movement that has its roots in Turkey um, and in Ocalan's ideas, as you explained, and because they've been able to create a successful alternative to the very uh, sort of nationalist project that the modern Turkish state is based on. You know, I would say that the Turkish-Kurdish conflict, and I don't like to call it that, uh, but that is what most people call it today, is really a conflict now over two competing visions of regional order, uh, with Turkey's based on uh, the right-wing wing neoliberal nation-state and uh, the Kurdish movement's vision of a Middle East based on self-determination, liberation, equality for women, and other values, uh, not only for Kurds, but for all people. So because North and East Syria represents um, both Kurdish success and in creating an autonomous region, and it represents these ideas of the Kurdish freedom movement that challenge Turkey's nationalist project, um, Turkey has been trying to destroy the autonomous administration of North and East Syria by all possible means for a very long time now. They've invaded Syrian territory twice to attack the autonomous administration and the SDF, uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces, once in Afrin in 2018. Afrin is in northwestern Syria. And then once in 2019, after um, you know Trump and Erdogan's phone call uh, that we all infamously remember in Serikaniye and Talabyad in northeastern Syria. So you've had these two invasions and occupations of um, North and East Syria's territory that have included not only the terrible violence of invasion and occupation, but also all kinds of crimes against civilians who remained. We've seen uptakes in violence and abuse of women, um, ethnically motivated, religiously motivated hatred and persecution that's driven virtually all of the non-Arab and non-Muslim people living in these regions to flee their homes. Um, attacks on anyone who is perceived as having collaborated with the prior administration, all being carried out by Turkey and uh, Turkish-backed Syrian militia groups. So we've seen the persecution of the civilians in these areas with the intent of changing demographics and installing not only a government sympathetic to Turkey and the military structure sympathetic to Turkey, but also removing the social base for the autonomous administration's project. And then in addition to these um, all-out attacks on the autonomous administration in these regions, Turkey continues to threaten the territory that North and East Syria does have left, which is still nearly one-third of Syrian territory concentrated in the northeast. There's been an escalating campaign of drone strikes targeting leaders in the autonomous administration and the SDF, as well as Syrian civilians. Turkey is cutting water access to North and East Syria um, by restricting the flow of the Euphrates River. This is an agricultural region. People depend on that water uh, for all aspects of life um, and certainly for the economy. That's caused a great deal of suffering. The entire uh, Turkish-Syrian border is very heavily militarized. Uh, when you drive by it and you see the wall and, you know, very lit up at night with the barbed wire and everything, and you just look at, you know, these civilian towns, very peaceful on both sides. It's something very disturbing to see. Um, but it's a highly militarized border and it is a completely sealed border. Um, Turkey does not trade with North and East Syria and supports an international economic blockade on the region, including by pressuring its allies to um, restrict the access of goods to North and East Syria. So there's economic going on there. There are really every tactic that Turkey is able to use, whether military, economic, environmental, political, or anything else, in order to crush and destroy uh, North and East Syria's political project and force the Kurdish people and the other peoples of that region to flee so that there is no base for such a project again in the future. Uh, they're doing everything they can to achieve that outcome. So 
The situation is very difficult and it is a direct result of Turkey's, you know, century old Kurdish question that it has been unable and unwilling to honestly and in good faith seek a peaceful solution to. Um, and we'll get to it later, but the international community has played a very big role in ensuring that that conflict goes on uh, with all of those negative consequences for Northeast Syria. Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the, so obviously, Turkey is the second largest military in NATO. Um, and has, you know, w- one of the things that is such like, so messy about this is that on paper, and on the ground, in fact, the United States has been supporting the autonomous region um, in, in Northeast Syria, and particularly the, the YPG and the YPJ, which is, you know, the, 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 the militia, essentially. Um, as as partners in the fight against ISIS. And still to this day, right now, there's an operation going on in the Al-Hol camp, which is where a lot of ISIS prisoners are held, um, that is like a coalition-supported operation. And at the same time that the United States is doing this, we're selling weapons to the people who are have essentially declared the folks that our military has been aiding um, a terrorist organization, um, which is a, a peculiar and frustrating situation, to say the least. Yeah, and and actually, the other thing that's happening, Robert, is that you know Turkey, while it's threatening a full-scale invasion, they've been doing all of these things that Megan described, sort of on this sort of low-intensity warfare scale, a kind of military strategy that uses a whole variety of tactics um, that are short of you know a, a full-scale invasion, which still may come and. So, you know, there's these extrajudicial killings of mm-hmm. uh, some of the leaders of the SDF, which is the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is the sort of umbrella group of the two militia, Kurdish militias that you described, and which also includes many Arab fighters and others who have, yes. who have been central in defeating ISIS, at the cost, I might add, of about 13,000 lives, yeah. you know. And, um, you know, and the, and the use of their proxy groups like the Syrian so-called, you know, SNA, Syrian National Army, which is really, a, you know, a group of, of jihadi militias that Turkey has kind of assembled and now completely is responsive to Turkey and, and is, are the sort of shock troops for when they went, did go into Afrin and at, for these other invasions. Um, you know, economic pressure, as as Megan described. But the point is that this kind of warfare, it produces these sort of ongoing low-level attacks, but it keeps it sort of off the radar of the of the bigger political and 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 media machine, and therefore it keeps it from getting the attention that it really deserves in Western societies. It also has the impact of displacing hundreds of thousands of people. And and uh, you know and and many hundreds have also been killed. I'm sure uh, probably you're familiar with some of the recent bombings by drone that have been occurring in in Rojava, which you know, including many civilians, school children. Yeah. Turkey Turkey is doesn't care at all about about who gets hit, and they have been very aggressive, um, without any respect for civilian casualties as well. So you know. So, I mean, I think it's it's important to also just note that this democratic project is in Syria is a deep threat to Turkey because and and that every time Erdogan steps up these military sort of this aggression, um, it, it leads him to rise slightly in the polls, which is something that's important to him because he has an election coming up next year. So there's that sort of political dimension to it. But the fact is that that. Rojava is basically a women's revolution. Women are involved in every aspect of running society there, the political, the social, the economic. And Turkey is essentially a femicidal state. Yeah. You know, it, it not only reviews women within, within Turkey as less than human, where husbands can basically get away with murdering their wives, but, you know, it, it targets girls with drones, as it did on August 18th, when a Turkish drone bombed a UN-supported education center for young girls in, in Haseka in Rojava. So, you know, it's, it's uh, very much, as Megan said, a, a war of ideologies as well. 
The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. I won! Yahoo! Private, put down your phone. This is the army. Sarge, High Five Casino is a social casino. It's on your phone, goes wherever you go. I win free spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. I won again! Platoon, present cell phone. High Five! High Five! Casino! Casino! Win at High Five Casino! High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. Glow with your best skin. Be confident in your skin. Be brave in your skin. With Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash, cover your skin in layers of rich moisturizers and vitamin B3 complex, transforming your skin from dry and dull to moisturized and smooth in just 14 days. Feel the best in your skin and glow with confidence, all pride. Olay Body is a proud sponsor and supporter of iHeartRadio and PNG's Can't Cancel Pride, raising funds and support for the LGBTQ plus community. Olay Body wants you to feel empowered to live with confidence in your own skin, not just all month, but all year long. And when you feel the best in your skin, you can do anything. So this pride glow with confidence with the help of Olay Body. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. Happy Pride! Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Again, one of the things that's so frustrating with this, so historically the reason why Turkey was, it was so important for NATO to get Turkey as a member is because that's essentially NATO's eastern flank. If you're still thinking about that big theoretical conflict between, you know, Russia and uh, and the Western democracies. That was why, you know, part of why why initially like Turkey was such a valued partner. And then as time has gone on, it's um it primarily um, one of the big things is we have a massive airbase in Turkey in Serlik, um, mm-hmm. where a number of U.S. nuclear warheads are kept. Um, so there's a tremendous fear. Cowardice might be a better way to say it on behalf of um politicians in the United States and other Western countries to actually engage with the ethnic cleansings um, and with the human rights abuses that the Turkish government, particularly under Erdogan, has uh, has continued. And one of the things that's really frustrating about this, you know, if you think about the way in which ISIS was discussed by U.S. media, was discussed by, you know, conservatives, by Donald Trump during his campaign, you know, it was this ultimate boogeyman. Well, a huge chunk of the support for for ISIS and in fact even logistics for some of their fighters uh, came allegedly courtesy of the Turkish state and there's some evidence for this. There's certainly evidence of uh, support for wounded fighters and kind of a a lax policy that allowed a lot of people to come through Turkey and get into northeast Syria to fight. Um, and you know as you noted earlier, thirteen thousand somewhere around there fighters, men and women. Um, in the YPG and J, uh, died fighting ISIS, and you know, um, and were you know not just fighting ISIS kind of with the backing of the United States, but prior to getting any support, one of the most important things they did, the while ISIS was on the move in Iraq as well as Syria, they were carrying out an active ethnic cleansing, a genocidal operation in Mount Sinjar against the Yazidis, um, and that was only really. Stopped because while they were fighting a defensive war in northeast Syria, the YPG sent fighters into Iraq to stop the genocide, um, and they were successful in this. You know, you talk to as I have a lot of Yazidi survivors of the genocide, and they'll say the only reason we got out is because of, you know, the YPG. 
Um, and the PKK, by the and way. The, and the PKK. Yeah. Well, and that is the, it is, it is, so we, we should, we could talk a little bit about the PKK. They are, the, the YPG and J and the SDF, which is kind of the umbrella organization, are not recognized as terrorist organizations by the United States or by most Western democracies. The PKK is recognized as a terrorist organization. Turkey's allegations would be that the YPG and J and, and other, you know, uh, militias are just PKK affiliates. Um, the reality is that they are in quite, in fact, quite closely tied. <laughs> um, uh, and, and you will, you know, but also there, it's not the exact, like when you're in Rojava and you encounter people who are PKK, people will speak about them differently than they will talk about other people who are kind of, you know, they're the folks from the mountains is the term that I hear used the most. But the thing is, see, here's the problem. The problem is that that whatever the PKK's history is and has been, and it's way sure. more than we can get into, the PKK made a dramatic shift in its ideology yes. and has done everything possible to try to restart peace negotiations with Turkey. So first of all, you know, there are several, as Megan mentioned before, there was a, a peace initiative that went on for a few years that then Erdogan decided wasn't, um, you know, beneficial to him. So he, he stopped it. But the PKK, and, and as recently as I think a year or two ago, the leader of the, of the PKK in the mountains right now, Jamil mm -hmm. Bayek, wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post saying, we want to have talks. We want to have reconciliation with Turkey. We're not asking for a separate yeah. Kurdish state. All we want is some degree of autonomy. And, and uh, you know, and and it's actually to the enduring shame of the Western media, including the New York Times, that they continue to talk about them as a separatist organization. But that's another story as well. The, the fact is that these um, ideologies that they both subscribe to, PKK and the YPG, YPJ, regardless of whether, to what extent they may be related, the political ideology is an ideology about direct democracy. It's about empowering people at the local level. It's about making sure that every adult and also the youth have a say in their communities. And it's as grassroots democratic as anything that you could ever imagine. And so really, you would think that the United States you know, would understand that there's certainly no threat that the neither the the YPG nor the YPJ has ever um, shown any aggression towards Turkey, which is what makes this idea of a buff the idea that they need a buffer zone kind of a joke. You know, so really, it's it's a ideological shift that's so profound and so empowering to local people that it's also something that, frankly, those of us who are on the left should be much more supportive of. I think than than people have been so far. Yeah, I mean, the thing that is most remarkable, because I spent a lot, I've spent more time certainly in Iraq than in Syria. And we should note here that we're talking about Syria today and we're talking about Rojava. Uh, Turkish aggression against particularly, um, against the PKK, but against, you know, Kurds kind of in an ethnic sense, um, extends beyond Syria. Turkey has illegally attacked Iraq and in fact moved troops into Iraqi soil uh, a number of times escalating within the last year and killed a substantial number of people in the in the Kurdish regional government territories. Um, so that is also occurring here. Um, although it, it's it's worth noting, again, because people mix this up a lot, what's happening in Kurdish-controlled Iraq is profoundly different from what's happening in Rojava, and they're extremely different political organizations. And I think it's also worth mentioning that it's not just um, Kurdish groups they've been attacking in uh, Iraq, there have been a bunch of attacks like on, on after the survivors. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they've killed a bunch of those people too. It is yeah. the uh, yeah, they're yeah. Just, they're doing the genocide again. Yeah, the I think yeah, and it's um, it's interesting. You know, I, uh, I it's also kind of worth the thing that's was perhaps most surprising to me there was the degree to which people I would meet who were just like, in, in many cases, just like kind of, you know, terrorism police, Asayish guys, or people who were like working traffic checkpoints or working in the farms. The, there were, people were really careful to not refer or talk to like what the project was as a state. And it's, it's not on a state, a state, it's an autonomous region. That's one of the terms I heard the most is the autonomous regions. 
which is is really interesting to me and is is hard it's something certainly like mainstream media writing about it um seems to have trouble grasping as you say and it's it's interesting because obviously it, debbie in case folks haven't put it together you are the daughter of of murray bookchin who is the um who is the the political philosopher whose ideas formed a significant like core of of sort of what the organizational structure in rojava is um well, well i just want to say first of all thank you for that but yeah. i also just want to say that i i really want to remind everybody that of course you know abdullah chalan <clears throat> read hundreds and hundreds of yes. books not just my dad's no. so i mean i appreciate that but you know they have he has really especially placed emphasis on the need for any revolutionary project to have the liberation of women at its core yes. my dad talked a lot about hierarchy and patriarchy but uchalan by making women central has really done something unique i think you know in in the history of because in the history of sort of revolutionary you know movements because as many women who have participated in those movements in the past can tell you it was always sure fight with us and we'll deal with the women's issue when the revolution is over and Jalan turned that upside down you know and he said it's got to be a women's revolution yeah. or it's not a mm -hmm. revolution at all and the women in those movements over there really fought for that themselves yeah. too um and one of the things that you know was most interesting for me to see um was when I would go into meetings there with women in all kinds of different, uh, you know, military and civilian institutions in different cities across the region that before I would even bring it up as a researcher, you know, women would say to me that if it weren't for Ochelon's theories, we wouldn't have the organizations that we have. We wouldn't have the political power that we have. And they had this incredible articulation of how they use these ideas, you know, as inspiration for their own work. And also as almost political cover to do kinds of things that wouldn't be accepted in other places, because they can go to men who they work with who might be suspicious, but who, uh, you know, have this public stated claim to this ideology. And they can say, well, Ochalan's books say that society can never be free without women's liberation, that women can mm -hmm. have their own separate institutions. So they've been able to really take these ideas and expand on them and, you know, push them and use them with their own practice. Um, and the way that the ideas came about themselves, uh, one book that I would recommend anyone interested in the Kurdish movement, um, in revolutionary women's movements anywhere in the world, in really any topic related to any of this to read, is um, the autobiography of Sakina Johnses, who was the only woman present for the founding of the PKK and was really instrumental in organizing both the armed and civilian sides of the Kurdish women's movement in Turkey. Um, there are pictures of her everywhere in Syria. She was assassinated in France in 2013 uh, by Turkish nationalists uh, affiliated with the state, likely uh, suspected, you know, hoping to disrupt the peace negotiations that were ongoing at that time. But she's remembered everywhere in Northeast Syria for her role. And you can see in her book, her talking about seeing the inequalities that, as Debbie mentioned, women in socialist movements and revolutionary movements often faced, where they were asked to, you know, be as committed to the struggle as their male comrades were, but were still treated um, in very patriarchal ways by men that they worked with because of, you know, the patriarchy embedded into these societies. And you see her talking about organizing women to overcome this. Um, and when you look at the history of the Kurdish movement, moving into what you see in Northeast Syria as well, you know, women were really able to do so much in practice that the theory had to move to catch up to them. And then to yeah. take this new incredible theory of, you know, women's oppression being the basis of all oppression um, and the form of oppression that, you know, must be addressed to free all members of society in all ways, you know, they took this and they continued to expand it. So in a very difficult place and context to do so, I mean, we know that in war, um, there's more violence against women, there's more discrimination, there's more emphasis on traditional gender roles, that this holds true across different societies and different conflicts. So they have, um, they face many challenges. They're up against a lot here, certainly, you know, with all the problems um, 
that they're facing in Northeast Syria because of conflict and poverty um, and everything that Turkey's doing that we've discussed. Uh, so they're up against a lot and it's not easy, but they've really, you know, they've come incredibly far um, and seeing how, you know, they've taken very high level theoretical ideas and then done so much in practice and how their practice and theory inform each other um, is really one of the most incredible things to see over there. Um, and it's another reason why Turkey wants to destroy them because Erdogan does not believe that women can be equal to men. Um, he does not see male violence against women as a problem. And yeah, you know, as uh, we've discussed, uh, Turkey and the Kurdish movement couldn't be any more different on this question. No, and it's, um, I think the thing, because, you know, going over there, I, I went with the eye as a journalist where like I had heard all these things and, and Rojava has kind of become among some chunks of the left, chunks of the left, a cause celeb um, in part because of, you know, the achievements uh, of the revolution in that space. And I wanted to see how legitimate is it. And um, part of why, you know, I kind of went in with that attitude is that I had spent so much time in the Kurdish regions of Iraq. And if, if you remember when the fighting against ISIS was at its height, there was a tremendous amount of coverage of the, the female Peshmerga and the fact that, you know, the Kurds in northern Iraq, who were the force in Iraq that collapsed the least when ISIS was on the advance. Um, it's overstated how well they did. That's why the YPG needed to rescue the Yazidis at Sinjar is the, the, the Kurdish military in northern Iraq just kind of bounced at that point. But, um, you know, I had heard about, you know, these that, that the this women's rights situation is great in northern Iraq. It's very egalitarian. There's women fighters. And it is, it's certainly, and anyone who lives there will tell you, much safer and easier to be a woman in, in the KRG, the Kurdish region, like control, Kurdish regional government parts of Iraq than it is further south in the country. But that doesn't mean it's it's good. It is it is more like certain things are somewhat more tolerated. There's more freedom, but it's still a very traditionalist society. And for example, I didn't see any female Peshmerga. Um, they did not make much of a presence on the ground and, and their, their, their involvement in the fighting was exaggerated somewhat as part of a conscious PR strategy. Um, as soon as you cross into Northeast Syria, you see women manning and running checkpoint stations. You see as you go in, cause they're like, you know, they, they like you get like passport and stuff like looked at and you get like stamps and, and whatnot when you kind of come into the, to the region um, you see a lot of women like running that part of the operation. You go in to the actual country itself and there's we, we visited uh, a, a restaurant that was run by a collective of women who had all lost husbands in the fight. And we ran we went to a farm that was all young women who had left their families who were very traditionalist in their religious attitude um, and, and gone independent. And of course, you see um, female military units and female. We saw mixed male and female like military policing units and stuff. And it's. It's one of those things that if you are going there kind of uh, with a critical eye to try and see how extensive the revolution can be, I can't imagine not being convinced of the reality of it because it's it's just so stark. Well, also, Robert, you know, first of all, just to, again, you could say a lot about what's going on in, in Iraqi Kurdistan, but yeah. just to very quickly sum it up, I mean, it is a capitalist petrol state it's run by a clan. So. Yeah. The Barzanis, you know, who who accrue basically all the wealth to themselves. Yeah. And you can't even begin to compare it with, with the no. kind of revolutionary project in Syria. So, I mean, I just want to, in case, so people oh, yeah. understand. I mean, I don't want to use, I hate to use the word socialist because it's such a, it's so fraught. But you could, the closest thing, you know, it's a, it's built on a socialist economic model, except a better one, more like what my father and what Abdullah Jalan have in mind, which my father called communalism. And this democratic confederalist model is based on cooperatives, you know, where people really do um, have the means, control the means of production as much as possible. I mean, it's obviously all, you know, still in formation. It's still growing. And, mm -hmm. and there's <clears> areas like together. the energy sector where things, <clears throat> have, you know, are less like that, but are, I, I hope, you know, given yeah. time, move in that direction. Yeah. I mean, obviously, no, this is certainly not some kind of perfect utopian. Of course it's still not. in the middle of a yeah. war zone. 
But but as you pointed out, what you see when you go there is women so active in every aspect. I would add to to what the great examples you gave, the women's houses, oh, the Malajim, gosh, yes. yeah. I wanted right? to talk about that. Right, yeah. where they they are literally resolving so many problems for both men and women, you know, at the yeah. community level. And and so it's it's really quite an extraordinary, you know, I, I guess what I want to say about it is that like if if we all got on board of you know one of that that Cretan Elon Musk spaceships went to Mars <laughs> and found a colony you know where they were doing this we'd be cherishing it we'd be going oh my god you know look at these people they're like they have a cooperative economy and they have women's councils at every level wow men can't overrule women on a decision that comes to say women's bodies think here the dobbs <laughs> decision right on the supreme court yeah. women only women can can decide those issues that are related to to women and there there are councils at every level and people sending delegates you know meeting in their little villages and towns and communities and electing delegates to the next level. It is a true grassroots democracy and it's ecological and it's feminist. It's like if Ursula Le Guin were writing about it and the dispossessed, yes. we'd all be going, wow. Oh. So, so really, you know, it's something that I think, especially anybody who considers themselves a feminist, you know, should be supporting. And, and certainly, and I hope all of us do, you know, and, and certainly anybody, you know, I would think who's an anarchist to me, it's pretty close to any, every anarchist's dream, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so I, I think, yeah, I just wanted to make that contrast with Iraq because I think yeah. it's really important yeah. and it really goes to why mm -hmm. the Kurdish project really needs very badly the support of people in the United States, because in so many ways, the United States kind of calls the shots about what can and cannot happen over there. If you look at the problems they have, you know, to all of that, because of course, all of these places are not perfect and have, you know, these serious issues alongside these serious achievements. Every issue that they have is an issue that any society would have if that society uh, had been through 10 years of war, um, were impoverished and blockaded from virtually all economic activity with the outside world, if they had had to not only uh, you know, fight the occupation of a group like ISIS, but then immediately turn around to fight a state army much larger than them, you know, bent on taking and occupying their territory, a society where people fear going outside because they don't know if they'll be in the wrong place at the wrong time when there'll be a drone strike on a local military leader going around doing their job, keeping their community safe from ISIS or a local political leader going around doing their job, trying to you know, build this new system. So I think when we look at the flaws, uh, they're flaws that are the result of, in large part, poverty and conflict and all of the compounding crises that uh, the people of North and East Syria have to face because of what they've gone through, you know, as Debbie mentioned, much at the hands of larger powers. So much of what happens in Syria is up to what the United States wants, up to what Russia wants, up to what yep. Turkey wants. Yeah. Um, all of these countries and regions, you know, with different priorities, different outlooks, but it somehow happens that at the end of the day, uh, you know, the one thing they can all agree on is that um, it's okay to sell out the autonomous administration. It's okay to have consequences for them. You know, if the yeah. Kurdish people suffer, the Yazidi people suffer, the people of North and East Syria, all of these different demographics, if they're the people who are victimized, you know, because they don't have a state, because they're fighting for something different, because they're challenging the status quo, it's okay if they're the ones who face the consequences. We saw this, you know, with what happened with ISIS. We saw this with the complete international silence when Afrin was invaded, with the, you know, piecemeal response that stopped the Turkish invasion in 2019, but allowed them to convert what they were doing to this kind of low intensity war, um, you know, with a terrible ceasefire, you know, with undefined lines and with the, these drone strikes being allowed in areas where Russia and the United States, both of which have agreements with Turkey, are active, um, you know, and both of whom tolerate this. So essentially every powerful interest in Syria can agree on you know, ensuring that the autonomous administration comes in last. And as people in the U.S., you know, anyone who considers themselves 
on the left, who considers themselves a feminist, who cares about persecuted ethnic and religious minorities, who opposes endless war and militarist foreign policy that props up autocrats and, you know, props up far-right regimes. Anyone with any of those values should be very concerned about the situation in Northeast Syria right now and should be looking at what we can do to, uh, to get our government to stop supporting some of these very harmful policies against the region, you know, even while it claims to be supporting their fight against ISIS. The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. I won! Private, put down your phone. This is the army. Sarge, High Five Casino is a social casino. It's on your phone. goes wherever you go. I win free spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. I won again. Platoon, present cell phone. High Five. High Five. Casino. Casino. Win at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. Glow with your best skin. Be confident in your skin. Be brave in your skin. With Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash, cover your skin in layers of rich moisturizers and vitamin B3 complex, transforming your skin from dry and dull to moisturized and smooth in just 14 days. Feel the best in your skin and glow with confidence, all pride. Olay Body is a proud sponsor and supporter of iHeartRadio and PNG's Can't Cancel Pride, raising funds and support for the LGBTQ plus community. Olay Body wants you to feel empowered to live with confidence in your own skin, not just all month, but all year long. And when you feel the best in your skin, you can do anything. So this pride glow with confidence with the help of Olay Body. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. Happy Pride! Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. What can people listening here, uh, presumably most of you are in the United States or Canada or, or Western Europe, what can people listening here, particularly in the U.S., do to have an impact, to help? Well, uh, we could talk about that. Um, we could have an entire other podcast episode on that because there's a lot to be done. But, you know, to summarize in a few words, the way that the United States supports Turkey's war on the Kurdish people, uh, all the peoples of the region and the Kurdish national liberation movement is through um, military cooperation and support, through diplomatic cooperation and support, uh, intelligence sharing, and these pro-war legal pretexts. So go tell Congress that you don't want them to send weapons to Turkey. There's an F-16 sale right now that um, it was really great to see uh, the majority of Congress, including all of the squad members, people like AOC, uh, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, all opposed that sale. So opposing arms sales, very important, something that there's momentum there for um, and that there's momentum among progressives, therefore, which is very heartening. Opposing military aid and security assistance to Turkey you know, I've done research on this. U.S. security assistance has trained senior Turkish officials, including the country's current defense minister and several perpetrators of the violent, repressive 1980 military coup. Obviously, we should not be training coup plotters and war criminals. That is not something I think most people listening to this want their tax dollars to go to. 
So calling for an end to U.S. security assistance to Turkey, very important in addition to ending those arms sales and challenging the pro-war legal pretexts and designations that um, allow Turkey to get this kind of Western support. You know, a wonderful thing that we saw um, a couple weeks back was the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the U.S., saying that they oppose the terror designation of the PKK and believe that it should be delisted. That's something that progressives support uh, very strongly in Europe. We've seen, you know, calls from places like Ireland and South Africa, where people know a lot about, you know, what terror designations and, you know, the criminalization (laughs) of struggles, you know, can, can have impacts on conflict resolution. You know, people who've participated in these kinds of post-conflict processes in some of these places saying, get rid of the designation. It's harmful for peace. You know, it will be difficult to end this less violently without it. So that's something where, you know, it seems the international case for it is something that's rather obvious and where pressure in the U.S. on the U.S. designation to remove it would be an important step for facilitating dialogue and a negotiated end to this conflict. So understanding how the U.S. supports Turkey's wars on the Kurdish people and opposing all of those different uh, policies and programs is one of the most important things that we can do to say this war is not in our name. We stand with the people of Northeast Syria, with the people in Turkey suffering from Turkish authoritarianism, with the people in Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, Yazidis in Shengal being bombed by Turkish drones. When we say that we don't want to support this war, we stand with all of those people. Um, And I think that that kind of action against arms sales, security assistance, and pro-war legal pretexts could be a really great base for solidarity, opposing endless war in the Middle East, and standing up for, you know, peacefully ending this conflict. Um, And it would align us with progressives all around the world and, you know, people who really believe in in peace and in ending these kinds of things. And and if I could just add, you yes. know, one one element to that would also be really pressing for a diplomatic solution to the whole so-called Kurdish question because mm-hmm. Rojava will remain in danger as long as Erdogan and and his and his party think that they can basically, that they have to be fighting Kurds because, you know, to them, as Megan said before, Rojava is an extension of their own Kurds and of the PKK. So what, but but what really needs to happen, just as, as it happened in South Africa, is there has to be a negotiated settlement. One of the things that would help with this, and there are movements that people can get involved with if they want, would be freeing Uchalan, who has been in a, sitting in a Turkish jail for the last 22 years, because he is sort of the Nelson Mandela, really, of, of the Kurdish freedom movement, and he should be involved in these negotiations, and was, even while he was in jail, but really, you know, a, a jailed person can't really do that properly. So pressing for a diplomatic solution because basically Erdogan uses the PKK um, and the listing of the PKK as a terrorist organization to basically kill all Kurds everywhere. And in order to stop that, somehow there has to be a break in this. And so I think that, you know, people, there are certainly plenty of peace organizations and people who want to work on peace. And I think this is a really important demand that they begin that that the United States and the United States has nothing to lose by pressuring Turkey to engage in negotiations with the PKK. This isn't our war. The PKK has never done anything to the United States. It would make, as Megan said, for a lasting peace in the entire Middle East. And would, you know, and and so what I would say is first of all, Folks, it would be great if people who want more information about any of this could contact the organization that I helped co-found, the Emergency Committee for Rojava, which is at defendrojava.org. And we have scripts to call congresspersons, resources, and we even have fun monthly meetings that people can come to. Um, You know, and there's, of course, a lot of information at Megan's website, also kurdishpeace.org. But 
you know, one of the things that people could do is go out and talk to their communities, whether it's a religious community or a labor union or a food co-op or your kid's nursery school or reading group, women's group, and sort of talk and, and, and help. Because there's a lot of people who surprisingly really don't know much about Rojava. I think maybe because they're because the Zabatistas are a little closer geographically, that that project is a bit better known, you know. So talking to people and getting people engaged. And for example, if there's anybody listening from New Jersey, Bob Menendez is the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he's been pretty hostile towards Erdogan and and keeping on him with phone calls, emails is a great way, you know, for, for our, um, uh, as somebody who worked in Washington for a while, when I worked for Bernie Sanders, I know that these guys listen to their constituents, you know, and if they get enough calls, they start to pay attention to those things that, that come around. We could even get, you know, somebody to send a letter around to their colleagues in Congress saying, you know, it's time to, to start peace negotiations. Those kinds of things do have impact because, as I said before, unfortunately, the United States is really at the helm and in so many ways of what happens internationally in these geopolitical battles. Um, well, thank you so much, Debbie. Thank you so much, Megan. Um, I think that's that's going to do it for us today. Um, please, you know, continue paying attention to this. Um, did, did you want to, you know, Megan, did you have anything else you wanted to kind of kind of add um, or, or let people know? Actually, if both of you would let people know where they can follow you on the Internet. Yeah, well, I mean, I um, think that that about covers it. Look, the only solution for peace, democracy and self-determination in Turkey and in the wider Middle East is a just and democratic negotiated settlement to the Kurdish question. And I think that just as Debbie said, learn about what's going on, reach out to your communities, talk to your local Kurdish community if there is one, find the opportunities that there are to engage with people in Turkey, in Syria, in all of these places, you know, working for peace and standing up for these ideas. And then no efforts too small because ending this conflict would benefit everyone in Northeast Syria, everyone in Turkey, and all of us here, you know, knowing that our government was no longer supporting this terrible, unjust war. Um, so just get out there and do something um, to see the work that uh, the think tank where I work um, is doing on this issue. You can go to KurdishPeace.org where we have research and analysis on everything related to do uh, related to the Kurdish issue um, from all different perspectives. And you can check out our work there um, and you can follow me on Twitter, um, Megan Bodette. And the Twitter handle is at five underscores MJB. Excellent. My, my Twitter is simpler. It's just Debbie Bookchin at Debbie Bookchin. And um, again, I just want to say that, uh, you know, people we do at DefendRojava.org, and we are also on Twitter at DefendRojava, we have so many ideas and so much information about how people can get involved. As Megan said, if nothing else, no more weapons to Turkey until they begin peace negotiations, uh, give Rojava political recognition. That would be another thing people can be demanding. Also, that Kurds have a place at the bargaining table in any discussions about the future of Syria. So we have all those kinds of ideas, scripts, as I said, model emails, and more at defendrojava.org. Awesome. Um, thank nice. you all for uh, for being on. And um, yeah, that's going to do it for us here. It, it could happen here for the day. Thank you for having us. Thanks. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. Welcome to Burger Yippee. Would you like a hot apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won! Woohoo! So 
that's a yes on the apple pie. I just went big time playing High Five Casino on my phone. Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. Yeah. So yes or no on the apple pie. Whoa! <laughs> I won again! I'll take that as a yes. Drive around. Have you had your High Five moment today? Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. Olay's new indulgent moisture body wash covers your skin in layers of rich moisturizers and vitamin B3 complex, transforming your skin from dry and dull to moisturized, soft and smooth in just 14 days. Feel the best in your skin and glow with confidence, all pride. For the third year, Olay Body is a proud sponsor of iHeartRadio and PNG's Can't Cancel Pride and supporter of the LGBTQ plus community. So this pride glow with confidence, not just all month, but all year long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.